Hello and welcome to another episode of the Value Prop Show, brought to you by the Pacific Basin Economic Council. I am Ria Mehta, your host for today. The theme of our episode today is sustainability and the E in ESG. To share insights with us on this topic, we have with us today Natalie Chung. Natalie is an environmentalist and social entrepreneur. She has been appointed to serve at advisory councils of the Hong Kong government including the Council for Carbon Neutrality and Sustainable Development and the Green Tech Fund Assessment Committee. Natalie also co-founded climate education organization, Ver Hong Kong, to promote low carbon local tourism as means to mitigate climate change and has represented Hong Kong in the UN COP25 Climate Change Conference, which led to the establishment of the Hong Kong Youth for Climate Action. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, thank you so much, Ria, for the amazing introduction. It's great to be here at PBAC and to share our thoughts on um, the E in ESG. So, as I just mentioned in your bio, you are a member of the Council for Carbon Neutrality and Sustainable Development for the Hong Kong government, which is so impressive. And so, talking about the Hong Kong government uh, and this initiative of theirs, can you tell us more about the purpose of this council itself and the role you play as a member? Yes, of course. Um, so the council was actually restructured from an initial committee that's called the Council for Sustainable Development, which has been around for many decades. The reason why it has been restructured into to include carbon neutrality into the agenda is obviously because uh, we all know that Hong Kong has set our carbon neutrality target um, by the year of 2050. It was actually set back in 2019 when I was also serving at the Council for um, Sustainable Development, where we did a public engagement on the long-term decarbonization strategy of Hong Kong. And that was when we did a public engagement exercise, understanding what the public uh, think about um, the carbon neutrality pathway of Hong Kong and what should be our end game, what should be the end year, like should it be 2040, 2050, 2060. In the end, we chose to align with uh, most of the other cities in the world, um, choosing 2050 as, as the end year. And uh, for this term uh, in the new council, uh, we started our first meeting in May 2023. And during that, um, we have agreed on um, the upcoming agenda, which is, of course, to garner um, different sectors' ambition around uh, Hong Kong reaching carbon neutrality as a whole. There will be two um, subcommittees, uh, working groups. One is focused on sectoral decarbonization, which means um, establishing different platforms, benchmarking exercises, and sharing best practices for different sectors to reach our carbon targets. The second one is around youth and capacity building which is very linked with our mission of educating the public, especially the younger generation, on low-carbon living practices, um, sustainability uh, measures that we can do individually in order to um, enable this green transformation. Oh, that's quite interesting. Um, so now that we've spoken about the government coming to businesses and organizations themselves, as we said, the E and ESG is gaining prominence specifically related to carbon emissions disclosures. What would you, from your experience and observations, of course, say about the sustainability landscape in Asia 
And do you think companies are integrating sustainability into their corporate strategy, or is it still very much a compliance mindset? That's a great question. Um, I have started a sustainability department in a multinational um, retail firm um, based in Asia. Um, so I have witnessed the journey from really having nothing at all um, to building up the whole sustainability practice just in the short period of time of two years. We can see that um, the reason why uh, my company first set up this sustainability department is, of course, mostly compliance driven and some of the pressure from our parent company um, that has investors pressure, given that some of the European funds and other funds mentioned that they might need to divest from us if we don't have a clear sustainability strategy in place. But I also observed that actually a lot of the companies in Asia are already doing a lot of work on ESG. It's just that they may not have a dedicated department to um, centralize the strategy and to look after the data. Um, so, for example, when I joined the company, my company already has a lot of volunteering work. We're donating a lot of leftover food um, and near expiry food to charities. But then we may not have a very holistic or centralized platform to collect all these information and translate them to some of the ESG metrics or parameters that investors could easily understand with a standardized benchmark. So I think um, most of the Asian companies actually have the mission um, integrated into their foundation uh, since decades back that they have this social responsibility or social mission to serve the community, um, to improve um, the planet's planetary well-being and also um, just to optimize their own operations, like enhancing energy efficiency that can ultimately lead to cost savings. Um, so when I first joined the company, I realized that all these, most of these are in place, but maybe we don't know where's the hotspot or where we should be focusing more on. We have this whole series of tools, whole um, a collection of activities that we're doing. So I think it, it is actually crucial for different companies to have at least maybe one or two people who are full-time on sustainability, who are up to date with um, the international trends and regulatory compliance, as well as um, being able to analyze the data um, so that we can identify the gaps for action instead of um, just spreading our efforts across all these different ERG pillars, given that it's very complex. It is actually way more effective if we're able to identify what action would move the needle. Take um, plastic, for example. So our company has embarked on a plastic uh, plastic reduction journey. Um, we're looking at how much plastic packaging has been used in our products. Of course, we have tens of thousands of products as a retailer, as a supermarket. So it's very difficult for us to initially, you know, reduce plastic for all of the products. That's why we decided to focus on top 100 items, um, just taking the 80-20 principle. If we're able to tackle the top 20, uh, the top 100 items, we're able to tackle actually the majority of our plastic footprint and able to move that number on a report um, that could appeal to investors, rating agencies, and of course, um, our customers. Um, so I think one of the key steps for Asia companies to take is to embrace the sustainability agenda and try to embed it into our daily operations. So we're having someone or a team that can analyze and um, just to capture the data in a way that could formulate a, a strategy that makes sense for the whole company. Well, that was very insightful and very clear. 
on the paths that companies should take. But talking about carbon disclosures, scope three emissions and reporting is become is becoming widely talked about. A, because I think it is a big chunk of the emissions that companies produce, despite being emitted from the assets that the company is not directly responsible for. And B, because it is the hardest to document. And as you just said, that we need specific people who are uh, experienced in this field and who can understand metrics and data. And the Hong Kong government is also making scope three emission disclosures mandatory from next year, from my understanding. So would you agree with this? And do you think scope three in particular is being documented with transparency in the Asia Pacific, especially as compared to the rest of the world and uh, the European Union, for example? Yes, you're right. Um, scope 3 is indeed one of our biggest challenges uh, faced by a lot of the companies in Asia um, that we do not have a very comprehensive data set, especially information from our suppliers. Uh, we know that from the CSRD, the new um, disclosure regulations from the EU, they will start to require suppliers to report on their environmental standards, um, social standards, and also some of the other disclosures. But then we don't see similar regulations coming in Asia Pacific yet. That's why um, for us, uh, uh, we are one of the first retailers in Asia that has conducted a scope three baselining uh, for all of our categories, uh, all the 15 categories. And unsurprisingly, majority of our scope three footprint lies in category one, which is purchased goods and services. That is over 70%. Given us as a retailer, we buy, we procure a lot of items from different suppliers. In the process of understanding the emissions in the first place, it's already a challenge to assign to establish a baseline because we had to send emails, um, numerous inquiries to our different suppliers to understand um, how much emissions are you currently making. Some, of course, um, there are some bigger suppliers who have um, all these data being disclosed, reported, but we also have some smallholder farmers or um, fishermen who have no clue what carbon emission is. I remember there was one meeting with a supplier based in Malaysia. They are one of our seafood, actually one of our major um, seafood suppliers. So we had a meeting with them and we were asking them, um, can you estimate how much fuel is being used for each time you sell your fishman boat out to catch the fish? And whether you know you're depleting the fish stock, they, they gave us a generic answer saying that, oh uh, yeah, so if we see um, smaller fish, we'll release them back to the ocean to let them grow bigger. And, uh, you know, like they're estimating maybe they go, they, they charge up the whole boat and then they go sail three, four times. So it, overall, it's very difficult for us to get these data and translate them to um, common framework that everyone could understand because all these countries have their own nuances and it's very difficult to standardize. And so that is a major challenge when we were establishing our scope three baseline. And in the end, we um, followed the GHG protocol, but at the same time, we also relied on quite a number of proxy data sets, which is accepted by SBTI. But then, of course, it doesn't go to the granularity that we would hope to. But I think it is still an important first step to go forward. At least we understand, you know, around 70% of scope 3 is from purchased goods and services. So in order to reduce the whole scope 3 emissions, we must focus on um, a better procurement strategy and to assist our suppliers to decarbonize. 
Um, so the approach that we're tackling this is uh, we're working with our suppliers on some capacity building exercises. We have identified rice uh, along with beef, pork are one of the major hotspots contributing to the category one scope three emissions. Um, so we are now um, contacting one of our own brand rice suppliers in Thailand. Um, they have shown the commitment to improve their uh, carbon footprint to reduce it and also to explore sustainable farming methods of rice growing. But then they don't have the resources, they don't have the expert network. That's why we're working with a consultant to bring in uh, local rice experts that can potentially teach them and to identify uh, what are the major what is the major reason behind their large um, footprint. Um, I mean, it's their scope one and scope two, uh, which is our scope three. So I think um, it's important for us as a larger retail group to contribute on these shared resources where we can help build capacity for our entire supply chain and um, through understanding our footprints and where are the hotspots to focus our resources on a particular commodity or on a particular aspect of the emissions. But I think that's very interesting. And now that you mentioned suppliers, um, I think what your company is doing is still very nuanced in terms of capacity building and engaging with suppliers. But would you would you say that other companies as well in the Asia Pacific are following nuanced steps to engage with their suppliers, or is it still a sort of strong arming suppliers to comply with what the company says sort of situation? Mm. I feel like um, there are indeed some more advanced retailers in Asia. Like I think one or two. Um, that are doing quite well on their scope three control. Well, um, from my observation, most of us are still taking a relatively gradual or nuanced approach because the problem is we don't have enough suppliers in Asia that can comply with all these standards, um, not to mention environmental standards that are very basic on ethical sourcing. We are actually looking at human rights, um, whether there's modern slavery, um, whether there's forced labor, child labor, slave labor uh, in a supply chain. And it is already a difficult exercise um, to get all these suppliers comply. Now we're in the process of conducting on-site analysis because, of course, when we send out the first round of questionnaire to our suppliers, most of them take all the boxes and they may not disclose the real situation. And even if um, a group has become a member of BSCI, that is... A membership organization to help uh, with uh, improving the standard of social audits. And we also hire third party companies to conduct on site audits. But we know that it is only a snapshot of what's happening. And there is still risk of uh, non compliance uh, in other days that we're not, serve, we're not uh, monitoring them. So I think um, it is still pretty immature in terms of the whole supplier landscape in Asia. Um, I guess one of the like uh, more hopeful note is that we see a lot more different ERG platforms. They are aggregating data from different suppliers, especially smaller ones. So we will be able to understand better how other suppliers are doing. And um, if we can share these data um, like European companies are doing. Uh, we can share all our tier one and tier two suppliers for our entire company. It might be beneficial um, for everyone to do, for 
for example, joy sourcing on sustainable commodity. This is, in fact, also what we're looking at for a um, next step of this um, scope three engagement. We're hoping to form a buy coalition with other major uh, retailers or restaurants in Asia who are looking at um, sourcing more sustainable rice and potentially developing a label around it um, so that we can exert pressure not just on our own brand, but also on our national brand. At the moment, I think the most difficult part is to give pressure on the national brands, um, especially for us, because um, although we're big in Asia, we may not be the biggest client of those national brand uh, uh, suppliers. They may um, maybe bought from some of the other bigger groups uh, around, um, maybe not in Asia, but in other parts of the world. Um, so when we were in contact with them, we have very little bargaining power to control them or or let alone to say we cannot source from you because you're not decarbonizing um, as rapidly as we wish to. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, they can just lose us as a customer. Well, we cannot lose them as one of the core suppliers that contribute to um, providing affordable food for our customers. Uh, yeah, so I guess that is still a pertaining challenge in Asia, and we can do better by improving our transparency and accountability as um, as the whole industry. Well, as you said, there are still a lot of challenges to overcome when it comes to Scope 3 uh, reporting and working with suppliers, especially, as you said, you know, with fishermen and smaller suppliers who don't really have the resources to work um, uh, in those specific metrics or in those particular standards. Um, but hopefully we will cross that bridge sooner or later. Uh, finally, this is a question we ask all of our guests, as the name of the show suggests. What is the value proposition of reporting carbon emissions, or specifically Scope 3? I mean, of course, it is to help mitigate the effects of climate change. But is there anything in it for the companies reporting it? Right. Um, I love this question. Uh, in terms of the value proposition, I think there are two main aspects. The first one is risk management. Um, when we're looking at the whole value chain, um, I think for Scope 3, it's allowing us to understand where some of our upcoming risk would lie. Um, for the whole company. As we know that carbon pricing might be coming um, for the whole world, maybe later in Asia, but then we believe that carbon pricing would come one day. And looking at our massive scope three um, emissions infantry, which contributes to around 80% of our total um, emissions, we think that, um, that this could be potentially um, some of the carbon price that we will need to bear in the future, which is a huge amount, uh, which is a huge amount in uh, putting us, um, our portfolio under risk. The second one is around uh, reputational management. As a responsible company, I think, especially for us um, as a large retail group, we do have the responsibility to assist our suppliers um, in a way that can move everyone towards um, the green transition. And when our suppliers, a lot of them might be SMEs, they don't have enough resources to spend on decarbonization. Or maybe they do want to do something, but they don't know how, or um, they're even not aware of this whole concept. 
I think it is um, a reputation for us um, to build this positive image um, that we're helping the whole value chain to move forward and um, building and gaining trust in our customers is also actually an exercise for us to understand better uh, what are our suppliers doing. I mean, mainly we're working with them on low carbon farming methods or regenerative farming, but at the same time, we're able to see some of the other problems that may emerge and how do we consolidate our supply chain to reduce logistics costs. So in the end, it will also lead to some additional benefits such as um, cost saving, optimization, and enhancing efficiency. So overall, I think scope three, it's a great chance for us to understand our supply chain better and to devise a holistically more sustainable and more efficient operation strategy for the whole company. Well, I think I agree with that. And I and and I hope that more and more companies in, in the Asia Pacific and of course across the world will realize that there is more to this than just compliance and will realize the advantages of reporting carbon emissions and scope three. Um in their ESG reports. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us today, Natalie. And thank you so much. And thank you so much to our listeners for constantly engaging with us. See you in the next episode. Thank you and bye-bye. Bye. The Value Prop Show is brought to you by PVEC, the Pacific Basin Economic Council. You can follow us and subscribe on our LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter. Thanks for watching and listening and see you in the next episode.